This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with your revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Every other week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. If you are ready to accelerate, then let's go. Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about building up direct-to-consumer channels, and to help me discuss this topic is Calvin Lammers. Calvin is the director of e-commerce at Spindrift Beverage Company. Calvin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Allison. Pleasure to be on with you today. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your background. I assume you didn't just pop out and become the director of e-commerce. How did you get here? So yeah, like you said, this has definitely been a path to get to where I'm at right now. I started out in the e-commerce world working for Quincy, which was a subsidiary of Amazon, to really cut my teeth, so to speak, in the e-commerce world and really a great kind of learning ground for direct consumer business and a customer first mentality from my time there. And through that, also got connected with a ton of people in the industry, the landscape, and ended up getting my search on the brand side, working for Kind Snacks and oversaw their direct consumer business uh, at Kind. And I really couldn't have been a better first brand to work for and kind of run the direct consumer business for you know, really leaned into e-commerce, really passionate about kind of disrupting the industry, you know, definitely with a legacy market for the bars at that time. And so really was a great opportunity to just kind of lead the charge in terms of emerging CPG brands and utilizing direct consumer channel to both benefit the entire business, but really get a better understanding of the customer and what opportunities exist for the business as a whole. So that was my first brand e-commerce and direct consumer channel four. From there, bounced over to the beverage size and was at Buy Brands, which is an enhanced flavor water. It was purchased by Dr. Pepper in 2017. I oversaw their e-commerce channel as well and now have been at Spindrick for about two and a half years now overseeing the e-commerce channel here. Great. I always think it's very interesting how people's teams shape up underneath a particular area. Or maybe you could just tell us what are the different groups that you have underneath your e-commerce umbrella? Absolutely. I think uh, e-commerce is definitely the far reaching this system that there's a lot of different touch points to your point Allison so within the e-commerce area we have a customer service team that's focused on our obviously consumer interactions and experience with both our direct consumer site as well as any of our online retail partners so obviously any questions that come up about the product any order issues we have a team that obviously is directly interacting with our consumers to make sure that the experience and in process is as seamless and enjoyable of a process as possible so we have our customer experience team that handles that aspect of the business. We obviously have our operations team as well. So they're managing all of our fulfillment, all of our production lines, all of our variety pack and assembly of any unique items for the e-commerce channel. And then we also have our financial analyst aspect as well. I love analysts. <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, sometimes you don't get the credit they deserve for the amount of work and the amount of insights and empowering uh, business leaders to really be impactful with the data and the analysis that they're providing. So um, I think that sometimes is an overlooked aspect of a healthy business. And so that's another crucial part to our e-commerce uh, team. Oh, you're just speaking to the choir here. I can't believe you said that. I kind of want to make a poster out of that. <laughs> <laughs> you can put my face on it if you want to. <laughs> I will not trademark that by any means. <laughs> 
All right. So I have seen a couple businesses that are like, hey, why should I care about direct e-commerce channels? And 90% of my business is coming from mass distribution to Walmart and Amazon and Target and any number of other big box stores. Why should I care about the D2C channel specifically? Absolutely. So especially a few years into the so-called D2C revolution, I guess, if you were to call it that, and you had all these emerging brands and digitally native brands that launch with direct consumer. And so I think a lot of those questions are coming maybe from either established brands or legacy brands that kind of see this emergence of these digitally native brands and what benefits or what's the opportunity for them to kind of get into that market or kind of develop their own capabilities in-house. And I think the biggest reason that I always say is kind of going back to what we were just talking about, the data and the insights that you're able to take from it. I think that can sometimes be forgotten about or maybe not given as much limelight as it should be. To your point, I think, and we're seeing this with even some of the best examples of digitally native brands, the Caspers of the world. Soylent, I think, is another great from a food and beverage brand that started online only first, but there is a ceiling in terms of that maximum online only revenue. So at a certain point, there does need to be an offline traditional retail element to the business once you kind of cap out or max out your online potential. I would not say that the online revenue shouldn't be the primary goal for companies or brands. I really do think that it's the data, the insights, and the customer insights, especially, that really is the biggest benefit or reason why you should look at building out a D2C channel or capability. And I will caveat that saying that I don't think it's the right answer or the right decision for every brand. I think that is something that I would say every brand, every company needs to really win analysis themselves and really see if that is something that they would gain those benefits from. But if they were to, I think that customer insights and data, it should be the, the believing reason or primary reason. I'm actually going to take issue with what you just said about maybe it's not for every brand only because I think if a brand has customers and a brand wants to know more about their customers, maybe every brand should have an e-commerce channel. And there's really only been one example in a B2B space where I was talking with a B2B company and this company happened to sell pools and they had such a tiered structure. And perhaps to your point, they were probably more of a fit for this. Like we have our structure, we have our technicians, we have our way of doing business and they were a monopoly. And so for them, they didn't want anybody buying directly because they had this structure to maintain, which, you know, to their credit was supporting people's jobs and a whole industry. But it was also causing the industry to be propped up by artificial pricing because you didn't have any competition, right? So I think when you do have, and maybe that's one of the issues you have to deal with is if you are selling D2C, you have to worry about competitors coming in and shopping you and all the competitive elements. Yeah, definitely a concern. I know when I was at Kind Snacks, that was definitely a concern internally about as we developed, we're really kind of pushing our channel. The concern was kind of give greater visibility and kind of insights to our competition into kind of how we operate, how we think, how we kind of roll out innovation. And that was definitely a concern from our end. In the end, our ultimate kind of where we landed is that we obviously stood behind our product 100%. We knew that our product and in our positioning would differentiate ourselves regardless. And that at the end of the day, we wanted to provide that best in class, unique, total immersive experience 
direct consumer perspective that we'll let the competition see everything we have on the table and know that we're still going to execute as great as possible. And that will be what wins us out in the end. I always have a theory that even if you gave your entire playbook to your competitors, that they actually wouldn't be able to execute it because of the way, you know, like the DNA of a business and how they do business. Do you think that's true? Right. I 100% think that's true. I've seen that plenty of times, even in my relatively short career, especially in this day and age where I think there's been more and more content and things written about, especially from a direct consumer perspective, that is the hot kind of focus for a lot of content and what, you know, success stories and how new brands or new companies built their business. So I think all of that is widely and readily available, but there's a reason why that it's not common or it's not widely replicated because there's a number of intangible pieces going back to how the brand is built, how it's positioned, what exactly makes it unique, and then obviously the people at the said company actually executing on that that vision. Yeah. I want to switch into examples here in a second, but before I do that, I'm just curious if you've seen any distributors that are actually giving more customer insights or more information than before. When you say in terms of distributors, in terms of retailers or... Any mass marketplace. So like on in the makeup space, it might be Sephora or Amazon or Target or any kind of mass aggregator and redistributor. Yeah, I think the largest one from my experience, it has definitely been Amazon, but I think one of the biggest kind of restrictions or one of the biggest holdups from both my experience and just speaking with others in the industry is that actually has been the biggest hurdle is the insights and the customer data. In fact, typically is kind of a black box for Amazon is that they do not share customer information. They really keep that to themselves. And regardless of how much money you spend with them, that has typically been something they're reticent to share. So I think it's been interesting in Walmart, actually just their Walmart media group just announced their kind of new program for 2020 to bring in some advertising partners and really develop their advertising platform to rival Amazon's well-established advertising division. But I think the interesting piece with Walmart is that at least in the announcements, they've made it clear that they want to lead with not only will they share the online data for many advertisers, but they also have the in-store piece. And that obviously with Walmart being the largest retailer, that is just massive to have access or that visibility into that in-store data. And that's where I think competition reads innovation, obviously. And to me, that's the biggest kind of opportunity moving forward from a large mass market retailer in customer data and just, you know, overall information. That's really going to unlock a lot, I believe. That is great. I will link to that announcement in the show notes, just so we have some reference to look at. I had not seen that announcement, but that looks fantastic because I spend a lot of time looking through the Amazon piece, figuring out how do you find the in, and they've just been locking it down more and more. And I think rightfully so there's a lot of concerns about privacy. Nobody wants to get sued. And did you find as you decided to go into D2C, did you have to address the privacy issue as well? Absolutely. At the forefront of any direct consumer conversations and especially developing any D2C channel. As any initial conversations when I broached the D2C topic with any general counsel or legal teams that I've had in my career that should be in that first kind of line of questions that you're asking both yourself and just the company about how you're protecting that customer information and making sure that uh, customer data is properly managed. So that's been a widely discussed topic in my career. And so that's simply been a hesitation where even when I was at Buy, one of the barriers to us actually launching a direct consumer channel at Buy is that after we were acquired by Dr. Pepper, that was a big point of concern for Dr. Pepper's team about that customer data and how that would be managed. Did they have a particular way they got comfortable with it? How were you able to kind of have that conversation? 
conversation with them to mitigate risk and help them see that there was a real benefit and a good trade-off? It was both the customer privacy and data concerns that prevented us ultimately from launching our direct consumer business there. And I think this kind of goes back to the kind of point that I made earlier. I don't think direct consumer is right for all companies. In particular, you get into issues, especially in kind of the beverage space, where you have some more established companies that have distributor or bottler agreements. And so then you get into certain territories that you can't sell products due to agreements that you have in place. And so that was kind of the other concern that was brought up in why launching a direct consumer business would pose a number of risks for a larger company like that, along with the customer data and privacy aspect. I see. So maybe one of the reasons why we can't buy Dr. Pepper Online and other products is there's legal agreements that are causing them not to take the leap. Unfortunately, right. Okay. Well, tell us about some other examples of where you've seen D2C perhaps do a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to kind of my first experience with Kind, leading with D2C and utilizing D2C in the best possible way with Kind, that was very much a scenario of being a new company still working on gaining national distribution. And so one of the easiest ways to kind of gain that national distribution is through DTC. And so right off the bat, we launched our direct consumer channel and store for kind so that we had availability nationwide, even if, you know, in Montana, if we didn't have availability in any stores in Montana, we at least had our direct consumer store for customers to have access to our product. And so that was kind of the first main reason that we launched it. As we went along, that obviously evolved. And after a couple of years, we started really seeing that sampling was a main focus for the company. And so we built out a very large field team that we did sampling events in more different markets. But then along with that, we also tapped into our direct consumer store and essentially created a digital sampling program. And there were two aspects to it. So one was this program that we called Kind Awesome. Um, obviously, the company was built around kindness and in having sharing kind act. And we created a card where you could sign up for this program. You could get 10 of these cards sent to you and you could give them out to 10 of your friends or any 10 random people you meet on the street. Each of those cards would have a promo code to a redeem honor store to receive 10 free Kind Bars. And really saw that as a great guerrilla marketing way to really increase our sampling opportunity without needing to have our field marketing team in every possible location and utilizing that technology and you know, kind of platform that we built to enable that. So I think that was a super exciting effort from a cross-departmental team to build out the program. So it obviously was not just the, the e-commerce team, the direct consumer team. Uh, and so I think that was a great vision of what an entire company and a coalition of teams coming together to, to build a program and utilizing the capabilities of a direct consumer platform uh, could look like. Calvin, what's so cool about that is not only is it a great program and it's a generous offer and it aligns with the brand, but people who are usually passionate about a brand, we usually considered to be high value customers. So in the act of giving 10 cards to 10 friends, you're essentially spreading from one high value customer to people who might be like them and probably have a very, very high propensity for being another high value customer. So that's a very clever strategy and it sounds like it worked well. It, it worked extremely well. There's a reason why we had it planned for a number of years, you know, after we launched it. Uh, and it was because of just that both the feedback from existing customers, you know, and 
and to your point about those customers that would be wanting and willing to share this brand that they're enamored with, that they love, those were our most passionate and loyal customers. So that speaking volumes went to their friends and people that they know that they're advocating for this brand. We can have asked for a better, so to speak, marketer for us. So that was just fantastic to have that. And both those people that were loving sharing the brand, but then also people obviously that had the brand shared with them loved the experience. So it went as well as we possibly could have hoped or imagined. This program makes me a little hungry. Does it still run? I'm wondering, how can I get on this program? Unfortunately, I believe it did end in 2017. So as far as I know, I do not believe it's still running, unfortunately. But that's not to say I know they still have a widespread sampling program. So hopefully you can find some kind bars somewhere (laughs) close by. Now, that's a great one-way kind of distribution. Like you said, it was designed to enable broader marketing sampling. So that's an angle of D2C that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes we think about it only from the data sense, but that's actually a very strong angle, too. What other examples can you share about ways that people have taken advantage of D2C? Another example with kind of going back to the data aspect with this on the flip side is that we actually did utilize the data and ordering insights that we had from our store. And we realized that we had a number of office customers that were ordering our products. So office managers kind of loading the pantry for their companies. And so obviously saw that as a huge opportunity since massive number of whether it be tech companies or especially I live in New York, a number of companies that dock their office pantries with free snacks, free beverages for their employees. And so saw that as a great opportunity, again, to kind of have an in to these companies and provide a perfect opportunity to get in front of new customers. And so going back to what I mentioned before, we have this massive field marketing team. And so we utilize that ordering data with these offices to say, okay, this particular business is really ordering a lot of our products. Maybe there's an opportunity to get in and do a office sampling event where we would have a dozen team members go to the office, bring not only our bars, which was our established product, but have some of our other lines, like our granola line, and try with yogurt parfait with our granola, or try a, you know, a granola bar, a different new product, and really saw that as a great opportunity to both get new products into these offices, but also reach new customers that we know already have an appetite for our, our product. So I think that was another example of kind of utilizing the established kind of company assets that we had at times, but then also layering in that DTC data and insights to really leverage that to an even greater extent uh, than we otherwise could have. Very nice. Good. And outside of kind? Outside of kind, yes. I'd say, excuse me, with Spindrift, we've seen a ton of success with really just launching new flavors and getting customer insights in terms of why flavor mixes go really well with each other. That's been very powerful for the company as a whole. As we said, we're still relatively new. We're vastly growing and widely growing our distribution. So we don't have yet a ton of customer insights outside of our direct consumer channels. So it's been uh, super exciting for us to gain that insights into what customers are looking for. Are there certain flavors that maybe we don't have wide distribution for yet that they're only able to get from our direct consumer? That also enables us to say, okay, this flavor is outperforming our our store versus your offline channel. So is it a matter of just availability? If so, can we take this information to our retailers and say, this is how well it performs in our direct consumer channel? Clearly, there's a customer appetite for it and make the case to gain on-shelf availability for these flavors that may not have the current distribution. 
So from the Spindrift perspective, it's primarily been, I know, that flavor mix assortment and being able to leverage that with gaining distribution with our traditional retail partners. So I want to follow up on two things there. One is the innovation side. Do the customers also give you more insight about whether they wished a flavor was a little bit different or they wished a different kind of flavor was available or do they mix flavors like you mix cereal and kind of, you know, come up with new flavors? So I think our customers are definitely passionate and they love to give feedback and that's what we love about them. They've been absolutely great about providing feedback on any new flavor launches. If there's any aspect of the flavor that they wish was different, if there's new flavors that they would like, and we definitely retain that and keep that as an opportunity to report possible new flavors. And then as a company, we're constantly updating and enhancing any flavor profiles as we go along from customer feedback. So definitely something that we're keeping. And even when we launch new flavors on our social media profiles, we're asking our followers for their suggestions, any new flavors that they'd be interested in. So that's a great way to leverage that consumer voice. It's interesting that you mentioned social media because this is obviously a powerful channel. Is that where you get most of your inbound feedback about what people like or don't like? Or do you take it in other channels too? If it's a mixture of channels, what do you think the percentage is across different channels? Absolutely. So I would say it's primarily social media. Absolutely. We do have a phone number that customers can call in and leave, talk to our customer experience team. We have obviously a write-in, but yeah, it's primarily social media. So we have our team that is monitoring and responding to any customer feedback and then also analyzing the customer kind of insights and communications that they're having. What are the takeaways? Are there any hot button topics? or opportunities from a product standpoint that could be great to kind of look at. So yeah, it definitely is a primarily led by our social media kind of channel though for those insights. I've heard that some companies, particularly very customer-centric companies, will start their executive meetings with comments or at least a key comment from the customer base. Does that happen at Spindrift as well when you surface the hot buttons and the topics? Absolutely. I mean, our customers and their feedback, their comments is definitely at the forefront of everything we do, especially within our e-commerce channel. That is something on a bi weekly basis, we're meeting, talking through any current hot button topics. If we have any uh, reoccurring issues that kind of come up through our customer comments, through our social media channels and our email write-ins and our phone conversations, that's something that we're constantly discussing. In all honesty, that's how we continually improve our experience with our direct consumer channel. You know, a lot of the optimizations that we've kind of made have been because of customer feedback and write-ins, whether it's been kind of the layout or navigation on site, the checkout experience, new variety pack options, any assortment additions. A lot of those things have come through listening to that customer feedback and those communications. Nice. I just have one other question. I don't know if you've run across this, but I had heard from another company who was selling a lot online that they took all of their data about what sells in the local area to a store, a large retail store in this case, and they were not able to convince them that even though they were selling like gangbusters online, that this retail store should carry their product. This was like a head slap to me. Why the distribution resistance? I definitely encounter that and heard of that myself. I think it's maybe not as common as it was a few years ago that that happens as much, but I still encounter that. 
I think the online customer is a different customer than the offline customer for whatever reason. I don't think that's as widely believed anymore. I think that understanding of how the two channels kind of interplay and really are targeting similar customers may be slightly different, but I think that widely held perception has changed, but it's definitely still been the case in certain occasions where we've kind of led with how well either we sell on in Amazon or what flavors do well on Amazon, brought that to certain retailers and just have not been received well at all, or it's just been dismissed. So I definitely have encountered that myself. The hope, obviously, is that that will change. And I think at the end of the day, I think myself and a lot of others believe that, you know, really, it is not a binary thing anymore, whereas it is offline versus online. You need to have the perspective that you should be wherever and whenever the customers want your product. And so whether that's ordering through your B2C channel because you have a subscription program and get access to new flavors, whether that's ordering through Prime Now because you need a eight pack because you have a party in two hours, or whether you want to go to Costco and load up on a variety pack, you should be available and ready to meet that consumer wherever they are. And it should not be a binary, you know, antagonistic relationship. It should be a complementary relationship. Oh, I love that. That's really well said, Calvin. So let's say that I'm a fairly new brand and I'm just starting out, if you took all the things that you knew and said, oh, you know, I should have done this or maybe I'll do this differently. If I want to launch my D2C channel and I've got resistance from my company, what should I do first? First and foremost, you should write down the reasons why you want to launch a direct consumer. So kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think it should primarily be led with data and consumer insights. But is that the primary reason? Is it you want to have a launch pad for or testing grounds for new product innovation? Is it you want to gain national distribution while you, from an online perspective, while you continue to work on your offline distribution? You really need to prioritize what are those primary reasons that you're looking and have an interest in launching a direct consumer business, because not only will that help you make a stronger case, but that should also influence how you build out your direct consumer channel. So obviously, if it's a new product and innovation test ground, so to speak, that experience is going to be very different from if you're looking to kind of build out just availability and primarily looking at a revenue channel to business start with. So I think that's really iron out and kind of establish what your priorities are and primary objectives with building out a direct consumer channel instead of just the idea that, well, we need to have one because everybody else is having one. How important is it to quantify the cost versus benefit when you're outlining those reasons? Yeah, so I would say that it can be a huge hurdle, I guess, right off the bat is the cost. So I think you definitely need to quantify that and make that clear to your stakeholders and in leadership. And that isn't always the cheapest channel to launch, for sure. There is a number of costs, whether that be the technology build out, the platforms, the team that you need to staff to enable and run directing your business and maintenance. And I think that's the always gotten thing where you go to your leadership team and say, okay, this is going to be an $800,000 development project for a platform for the technology build out integration. And then I think there's sometimes can be the misunderstanding. Like, okay, you did the $800,000 project. We never have to worry about that again. You come back two years later, we need to enhance an aspect of the store. We need to you know, do another redesign or replatform. 
And well, we did this two years ago, I thought that was it. And I think that should definitely be made clear at the start is that nothing is ever finished from an e-com and direct consumer standpoint. There is always ongoing maintenance, always should be ongoing optimizations and enhanced enhancements. And at the end of the day, that does cost money. And so it's not a one and done thing, unfortunately. Okay. So the first reason was to write down you know, the reasons why you want to launch a D to C channel. And then what do you do next? So after you kind of write down those reasons, we actually designated a project manager internally to really treat it as a internal project to shepherd it through the different project gates and receive sign-on and sign-off at every stage of the project and really have that ownership so that I think that it can happen many times with direct consumer launches. It can get caught up in red tape. It can get caught up in kind of wheel turning with the decision making, whether it be on the design strategy, the ownership of different aspects of the project. So kind of designating a project manager and really treating it as a true project, I think was one of the best decisions that I've seen in terms of launching it. Not only a direct consumer channel, but then any reforming or any development aspects of it. I think that's super crucial to ensure a successful launch and development of both the channel and the platform itself. And then after that, I think it's really, along with the project management, it's setting a certain date or amount of time post-launch to really assess the early results. I would recommend probably six months post-launch so you finally have access to that early set of data and insights, both the success and failures of different aspects of the launch and the channel. That should allow enough data and insights at that time to really get a true assessment of how things are working, how the launch went. Are your assumptions or kind of going back to the reasons why you're launching, are those holding true six months into it or has it changed Did you originally launched to gain insights about customer ordering profiles or habits, but you haven't actually been following up on that or were you launching for that innovation lab, so to speak, but those launches have not gone how you envisioned. I think that's a, that's a time when you can reassess and obviously pivot if needed, but then also just make sure that you're staying true to that vision. I think that makes a lot of sense to circle back to it. In fact, you can probably set a framework for how do you know it's successful up front and then start looking at whether you think you're trending toward that or not uh, so that at six months, you're probably, you're not getting a surprise. That's not the first time you're lifting the cover on the data, I hope. Right. It's like nothing should be a surprise at that point. So I, I hope it isn't. But yeah, you never know. But I think that's where if you have a framework and you have those kind of milestones in place ahead of time, that will help alleviate any surprises like that could disrupt all the work and, and foundation that you had are built up to that point. Oh, these are great suggestions, Calvin. And especially the one about the project manager. I think that makes a ton of sense and is one of those things that people don't always think about the hurdles of getting things through and the sense of ownership. The last thing you want after you launch a, you go through all this pain and you launch a DTC channel and then somebody comes in there like, and you're like, ah. <laughs> right. It just it disrupts everything. Yeah. It's like all thrown to the wind then at that point. Yeah. You don't want that. And development agencies will have their own project manager. So if you have either overseeing the entire project, both from a development agency side, who's ever developing the, the platform or technology, as well as internally and just having that, that cohesive and just kind of full view over the entire project and from both ends, that just kind of enable you to have a much more successful launch and development process than, than you otherwise would, I think. So now if people want to reach out to you to ask you follow-up questions or to try some different spin drift flavors, how should they get in touch with you? Absolutely. So best way to get in touch with me, I'm on LinkedIn, Calvin.Lammers, and you can obviously try out any of our product on our website, uh, spindriftfresh.com, where we're in a number of 
national retailers as well, see Target, Kroger, as well as Amazon. So definitely check us out if you haven't and uh, reach out. We'd love to connect with anybody that has any follow-up questions. I always love talking shop about uh, e-com and indirect consumer strategy and, and kind of topics. So I uh, would love to connect. And we will link to that website in the show notes as well, in case anybody just wants to click on it. As always, links to everything we have discussed will be at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Calvin, thank you for joining us today and sharing all your insights about the D2C channel. It's nice to have somebody kind of call out the little gotchas that people don't always think about. Hopefully I went through that so others don't fall asleep into those traps. So hopefully that those are good to kind of watch out. But that's been a pleasure speaking with you, Allison. Thank you. Remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic, just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. See you next time on the Customer Equity Accelerator.